Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to be uh, with you all. All right, I want you to turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. So here's a question I want to ask this morning. Uh, should we talk about money? Uh, and I think the, probably the better question to ask is, did Jesus talk about money? Uh, if you do a little bit of a study, and I'm quoting statistics, I didn't go through and verify all of this, but uh, I think these things are somewhat accurate observations about the New Testament. The first thing is this, 16 of the 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, the estimate is that one out of 10 verses, 288 in all, deal directly with the subject of money. The Bible offers 500 verses that address the topic of prayer, less than 500 verses on the topic of faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Jesus made this shrewd observation. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, our relationship to possessions, to money, is profoundly important. And I would argue that we certainly have much reason as a church family from time to time to discuss this topic that comes up so frequently in Scripture. Our responsibility as pastors is on a regular basis to communicate uh, all of God's truth to our church family on a regular basis. That is our God-given task, and certainly this is part of what the Bible uh, teaches to us about how we should live. Um, so how often do we talk about it? Well, the answer is not very often. Um, so if you're newer with us, we, we don't want you to think that we harp on this topic, or maybe you're sitting in your chair thinking, I knew it, here it comes. So uh, yeah, we don't want you to be frustrated. We want you to know that we do talk about it and seek to establish a biblical understanding of how we relate to the resources that God has given us. But, I would argue that it is the perception of uh, many people that keeps many pastors uh, from talking about the topic of our uh, financial uh, resources. Uh, some people have said to me, the church is all about money, or they just want your money. And uh, we understand that perception. And as a church family, up to this point, we've been taking up our, our offerings on a regular basis through a box uh, out at the front of the church building. Uh, the aim of that is so that we don't... It, our desire isn't to de-emphasize giving, but our desire is to say to those that are visiting within our church family, we're just glad you're here, and we're not going to pressure you uh, for financial resources. We believe that the financial resources of the church should be provided by the church family, the people that are regular attenders, that, that call, in our case, the chapel at Warren Valley, their church home. So if you're a seeker this morning, here's something you need to know. God doesn't want your money. He doesn't ask for your money. He is interested in a personal relationship with you that comes through his generous gift in Christ Jesus. No amount of giving can ever buy the gift that God freely offers to you. We're glad you're here, and we want you to have an opportunity to hear what God's word says. And so this morning, I want to read for us a, a small portion of Philippians 4 starting in verse 10. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. 
Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances are. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in wants. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet, Paul says in verse 14, it was good of you to share in my troubles. So what we have this morning before us in this text is, if you will, a bit of a thank you note from the Apostle Paul to the believers in Philippi. Uh, This week, my wife received a thank you note from someone in our church. She cooked a meal for them, and uh, we went over to their house and dropped it off and spent a little time with them, and uh, this week they sent a thank you note. That thank you note, interestingly, I think was directed to my wife, because if I had cooked the meal, there probably would not have been a thank you note. I would have probably been sending an apology. That's what I think. So uh, this portion of Scripture is functioning like that. Uh, These believers had sensed about or sensed and known about a need that Paul had, and so they acted to meet that need. And so Paul is, in this context, responding to them, uh, giving to us an example of what biblical generosity looks like. And as you study this text, you will find that there are simple and I believe yet helpful principles that guide us as individuals and as a church family in relationship to the use of our resources. So essentially a thank you letter and what Paul is expressing gratitude for, and just look with me at verse 15. Verse 14, he says, you in your giving shared in my troubles, my burdens. He says, moreover, as you know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except only you. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So Paul's in a sense, directing this thank you note, this letter of gratitude towards those who have had a significant impact in his life. Now, here's two observations I make from those two verses. Uh, Paul's gratitude is for what he would call a rare and notable generosity. Okay, so as as he writes this letter, what he can say is not many people participate in generous giving And the level to which you have sacrificed is, in fact, notable and remarkable. Here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Why is it that generosity, in terms of our giving of our resources, why is that rare? And why is it that when it happens, it's notable? And I think the reason it's rare is this. I think most of us tend to be kind of caught up in our own world, very much like what we talked about last Sunday morning in relationship to visitors. There's there's not an intention on our part to ignore people, but there is a tendency on our part to ignore people. I think the same thing is true with financial resources. It's very easy for us to fall into the trap of being concerned about us and ours. Uh, the possibility of allowing our primary responsibility in terms of finances, our family, to become our only responsibility. Does that make sense? I think we, we just, we have a natural drift or a natural default mode, and that is to see what I have as mine and the means by which I care for me and mine. And I think in this thank you note that Paul is writing, he will challenge that general tendency. 
So my aim today in, t- in, in, in discussing this topic is to encourage notable generosity and to prayerfully see it become the intentional and normative expression of the chapel at Warren Valley. That just generosity is what flows out of us. Now, as I say that, I want to say this. Many people within the context of our church family are very generous people. What I am giving to you today is not, I don't mean to scold, I mean to encourage. I mean to call you to to the biblical standard and principle as an encouragement to your heart that I will believe will have a positive impact in your life. So let's work our way through this passage of scripture about generous giving. Okay, so the first thing I want to note is that Paul says in verse 10, I greatly rejoiced in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. So the first thing that we note about generosity is that it is encouraging to the recipients. Okay, as those gifts are given and as that support is given to help people or to help a church family, there is something about seeing that happen that is fundamentally encouraging at the very basic essence of our being. That idea of shared responsibility. In this text, in verse, six, in verse 14 and also in verse 15, the word shared comes up. Okay, now if you're familiar with the word fellowship in the New Testament, the word koinonia, you know that that word talks about the idea of of a sharing of common values or common likes. Uh, There's a place down the street from my house called OK Four-Wheel Drive. All right, everybody that goes there has a love of four-wheel drive vehicles, particularly uh, Jeeps. A few weeks ago, they had their Oktoberfest Sunday. They have I think one of my friends that works there told me they had 250 vehicles come of Jeep-type four-wheel drive jacked up, made nice, okay? I noticed that Sunday morning when I was driving to church that there were about six Wrangler Jeeps that all looked, in an interesting way, similar. And as I drove by, I remembered where they were going. And here's, here's the thought that came to my mind. Those people have a common interest in something. That common interest binds them together, Okay? Now, when Paul writes his response to the church in Philippi, he understands that their giving was meant to be them coming alongside Paul in their common interest to see the work of God advance. Now, here's why sharing is encouraging. Sharing is encouraging because bearing heavy burdens alone becomes extremely difficult and wearisome. Yesterday morning, I was over on that side of the building And uh, there were just one section of wall that we had to sheetrock so that the electrician could come on Monday and put the panel up. So Tim Matthews happened to be there, and uh, I said, well, can we do this together? Because I'm not real interested in moving four-by-eight sheets of five-eighths-inch sheetrock by myself, okay? Uh, To do that alone, would I'd probably look a little different up here this morning uh, than I do because I had someone to share that burden. When you look at that kind of task and you think of doing it on your own, it just kind of burns you out. You think, you know what, I don't have any interest in doing that. But when someone comes alongside and says, I'll help you do that, there is this sense of the burden lightens. The load literally changes in terms of its effect on you individually. And so as Paul writes to the believers in Philippi, one of the things that he's saying to them is your participation in the gospel in terms of financial support has become deeply encouraging to me. The other thing I want you to know is this, that participation will enable us as a church family to be involved in things that we could never do on our own. I think of this in relationship to giving to missions, okay? Uh, There are 
impacts around the world that we as a church family have, not because we have gone, but because we have given resources that are helping those who are gifted to fulfill their calling before God. And our impact as a church family moves abroad. And for those that receive that help financially and then are able to function more effectively, they find that to be an encouraging experience. As I think about our church family, I think over the last four to five months as we've started to draw this project to a conclusion, I thought about a couple things that I think are things that we should celebrate as a church family. I think there are things that we should mention in this setting as a church family. The lighting in this room. Um, Estimates for just the house lighting in this room, the lights that you're sitting under, uh, to get to the, you know, to, the, to the proper one. Some of the estimates ran upwards of $40,000 just for that lighting, okay? We mentioned that there was a need for help with some of that, and an individual or a couple in our church came and said, I'd like to help with $10,000 to assist with that. You know what I felt? I felt encouraged. After we got the lighting done, we realized that the lighting was not quite adequate and needed about 18 more new lights. Now, word got out about that. I got a call about a week later. Someone said, I'd like to come over and visit the church building. I want to see this. They came, observed the need. As they left, here's what they said to me. They said, I'm going to send you a check for the church for $15,000. Now, how did I feel when I heard that? I said, write that out to my personal name. No. No, what happened was the burden of getting this fixed lightened. Because here's the bottom line. For those that that have been involved in kind of managing the process, when those kind of issues come up, it like creates stress. Okay? Because you start thinking, how are we going to resolve it? It's an open-ended issue. You don't have a resolution. It's not in the budget. How's it going to get taken care of? Someone steps up and does that. The other thing that happened in that same uh, four to eight weeks is somebody uh, called and said, hey, uh, who's taking care of the stage lighting? Who's covering the cost now? So, well, we tried to budget a certain amount for it, and that person said, and these are all separate people, they said, I want to send a check for $10,000 to cover the cost of the stage lighting. Okay? Then we started talking about furniture. And someone said, I want to provide the furniture out in the foyer for the church family, and took care of that. Okay, upwards of uh, $40,000, $45,000 that just came. Here's the effect that it had. It had the effect of encouragement on our overall picture as a church family. For those that were involved in some of the management part of this process, that type of generosity uh, just has an incredible positive effect. The other thing I want to mention this morning is this. The volunteer labor that went into this project which is an incredible giving. Uh, One individual spent the last month here every day for four weeks making sure that this facility was suitable for your occupancy in this room. Okay, four weeks forsaking pay personally so that that would be done. I think that's awesome. And I want to tell you this. Every time I would walk past this room and see that person, I was encouraged. Because that's the effect that, that sharing in that responsibility together has on the life of people around you. Our estimate on the conservative side is that on this project as a whole, counting the fact that we probably endured uh, some extra expense uh, for the amount of time that it took to complete the job, our savings conservatively came in at around $400,000 for this project. 
okay? And that's because people were willing to step up and bear the burden and get involved and do a little bit or do a lot, a whole mix of gifting that was poured forth. And so I, I, I just want to say that when, when you think about that, it should be encouraging to you. It should break you out of, if, if your natural tendency is to live in isolation, to be self-centered, it should say to you, you know what? I need to think about getting more involved in what God's doing and participating. When I heard about other gifts that people were giving, there was a sense in which I felt encouraged to be more generous. So the reason I share that with you is so that you can be encouraged. The first thing Paul says is that your, your giving, your generosity was deeply encouraging. Verse 17, he makes a fascinating statement. After giving thanks for their sharing, he says, not that I desire your gifts. This is fascinating. Paul's saying it's not about the money. He says, I'm not saying this to you because I want you to give more. It's not about the gift. But here's what he says. He says, what I desire is that more may be credited to your account. Well, that's a fascinating statement. That somehow in this generosity, there was a storing up somewhere of treasure. Now, most of us, when we give, we kind of start thinking about what we could have done. Okay, if you give on a regular basis, you should be able to say, if I didn't give that to the work of God, I would be able to do this, drive this car, live in this house, uh, eat at this place, because that giving that I'm doing is actually having an impact on my daily experience. Sacrificial giving. Paul says that giving is an investment in the future. He says, I'm not seeking your money, but there are dividends to be earned. And, and, and so he says, I, I am desiring, I want you to know that resources are being credited to your account as you give. And that's not the way it works in my checkbook. Okay? But Paul's telling them that as they give, something is accruing to their benefits. And here's what I think Paul's doing. I think Paul is reflecting on the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 21, where he sells to his disciples and to the crowd following him. He says, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will accrue or pile up treasure in heaven. He speaks to them further and says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. They won't last. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves cannot break through and steal. Now, I think this is fascinating. Paul's saying that giving that you do is encouraging, but that giving that you do is an investment in the future. See, here I think is the summary of the biblical wisdom that Paul is giving and of the wisdom that Jesus Christ shares I think what Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying, that trust in temporary things is foolish and misplaced trust that tends to breed anxiety and ultimately steals joy. Why? Because no matter how much I accumulate and build up for myself and for my personal security, at the end of the day, I leave it all behind. I can't take it with me. And what is Paul saying? Paul's saying there is a better plan. Take a portion of what God blesses you with and invest it in the kingdom of God. And as you invested it, you were passing it forward. And I just, I, just, I just love the thought of this. And it made me think 
of a couple of notable examples. As a pastor, I've been around people that are passing through the final phase of their life. Here's the observation I would make. I would make the observation that heaven is sweeter for the generous. The laying hold of future treasure is easier for generous people. I don't think Paul wants us to think that God has an actual bank account in heaven where he's putting money in every time we give money. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is your apprehension, your laying hold of that which has true lasting value in your final days and which also affects your daily life. He's saying that that piling up, that treasuring is going to deeply impact your daily experience. I thought of a couple people as I worked through this text. I thought of a man named Horace Lyons. Probably only three or four of you remember an old man that used to come to our church back at Hart's Lane. And he would, he would come up with this cane hobbled and crippled. And he would get in front of the church every time he came. He came up from Philadelphia once or twice a year. He could not be denied. He would get up and he would quote a poem and he would sing a song. That man, he would be picked up by my in-laws in Philadelphia. And often when they got to his house in Philadelphia to pick him up and to bring him to our Sunday service, he would just be getting back from riding around on the train on Sunday morning, handing out gospel tracts. I thought, and I know how that man died, okay? I know how that man died. With deep joy in his heart and profound love for Christ. And here's what he would say. He was a completely broken man. Here's what he would say to us. He would say, church, my retirement plan is out of this world. Meaning he had laid so strongly hold of heaven and its true delights in Christ that material things had come to mean nothing to him. Now, here's what I think. I think he's free. Two weeks ago, John Benton, the founder of the Walter Hoving Home, passed away. He spent, I, I, it's, it's at least 45 to 50 years of his life, he and his wife, rescuing women from deep brokenness. And I was talking to Dave, Dave Markle called me on the phone and he said, Tim, he said, I, want, I have to tell you something that happened this week. And he was sharing with me that John Benton had died. As he and I were talking, he said this to me. He said, what do you think it was like when John Benton walked into heaven? And I said, I think it was a pure delight. Why? Because that man and his wife have not lived for the, most, for, for the things that most of us would almost die for. That we give up significant portions of our life for. He was pursuing the reward. I, just, I love to think of that kind of a life. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. Generous giving is a matter of faith, isn't it? And Paul's saying, as you give and as you support the work of God on a daily basis, you are passing it on ahead. You are investing in your future. And the glories of heaven, here's what I believe. I believe the glories of heaven will be sweeter to those who have been generous. I don't know any other way to read this text. 
So I encourage you to consider what, what will generosity look like in my life? What does it look like now? What should it look like? The next thing I note in the text in verse 19 is that generous giving is worship. It is treasuring God above everything else. Here's the way Paul says it. He says, I have received full payment, speaking of the monetary gift. I have more than enough. I am amply supplied. I have received from Epaphroditus, from Epaphroditus the gifts you gave. So what's Paul doing? Paul's piling up verbs, four of them, to talk about this gift coming. He doesn't say, I received your gift. He said, your gift was abundant. It was generous. And your gift was worship. Notice the last part of verse 18. He says, your gifts are a fragrant offering, acceptable and pleasing to God as a sacrifice. Now, folks, when we open up our resources and when we begin to practice a degree of generosity that is satisfying and need-meeting, there is a sense in which something very glorious begins to happen. Our giving is transformed from simply writing a check to presenting an offering to God. And here's the way the text says it. It rises up to God as a fragrant offering, picking up off the Old Testament pictures of sacrifice when things were put on the altar and as they were offered up over the fire, an aroma would rise up and that aroma was figuratively spoken as something that was pleasing to God. That was the picture. And as Paul looks at the giving of individual believers, as he looks at the giving of the church in Philippi, he says that sacrifice you made is rising up into an eternal realm, and it is there bringing pleasure to God, which is to say what? It's to say that our generous giving is one of the uh, fundamental acts of worship that we have the pleasure of participating in. I think I can make this observation this morning. Material things and the desire for them have a controlling and enslaving capacity. They can Steal joy, the concern for them or the desire for them, the protection of them or the apprehension of them can begin to eat away at and bind our hearts. First Timothy 6, Paul says this. He says, command those who are rich not to be arrogant. And there's, there's a sense that when your financial picture stabilizes that we can become self-sufficient, right? We can become dependent on other things and shift the focus from God to ourselves. And Paul says to them, command those who are rich not to be arrogant. Warn them nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to hope in God. How? Command them to be rich in good deeds, generous and willing to share. In this, listen to this, in this they lay up treasure in heaven. Now, and like I said to you, I don't think it's that there's stacks of money when we get to heaven that are going to be given to individuals. I don't see that as the picture. I think it is this. I think it is that the joys of heaven will be deeper and greater and stronger for the generous. Because all of their life and all of their giving was preparation for that great and glorious and final day. Which I think would mean then that when I am controlled by the desire for more, I am forfeiting true treasure. Now the last thought that comes up in this uh, passage is verse 19. And this honestly is the verse that attracts me to this text uh, when I uh, think about giving. In verse 19, here's what Paul says. He says, and my God 
shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, if I was to ask you to characterize that verse, how would you characterize it? What is it? Is it a command? What is it? It's a promise. And I think it's an unequivocal, strong promise. And here's here's the way I would say it. Generous giving is attended by a promise from God. And what is the promise? I'll meet your needs. Okay, that's the promise. My question is this. Who is that promise for? Can every Christian say, I can depend on God to meet my needs? My answer would be no. No, that, that's not what this promise is saying. This promise has a premise built into it, right? The premise is this, and I want you to think about this with me. The, the premise is God will supply your needs when you are generous, Okay, that's the flow of the text in context. So this isn't a verse I can run out, put on a t-shirt, all right, and claim as mine if I'm not practicing generosity in my personal experience. So this is a promise that has a premise or a condition. If and when I am generous to the work of God, God's promise is not that he will enrich my life, not in the temporal realm. His promise is that he will meet my needs. And I, I love this promise because it, it may be that you're here today and you say, well, Pastor Tim, I, I can't give because, or I can't be generous in giving because I don't have enough. Okay, I'm always rubbing up against the bottom line. I'm always struggling to pay the bills. I'm always, there's just never quite enough. Here's what I would say to you. According to the book of Malachi, chapter 3, uh, the writer of Scripture says, God says, to the people of Israel. He says, put me to the test in this. And what is the test? The test is, give me a tenth of everything you earn and see if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that is uncontainable. I love that kind of challenge. The Bible is very clear on on a number of bases. Don't put your Lord God to the test. But there's one time in Scripture when God says to the church, test me in this. Practice generous giving and see if I don't meet your needs. And I think that's the, the, the promise that's here. Proverbs eleven twenty five says it this way. It says, a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Now, I want you to understand something. What I'm talking about is not a prosperity gospel. It's not saying, hey, if you give to the chapel of Warren Valley, you'll get rich. Okay, that's called shysterism. Okay, that's the kind of stuff you see on TV it's called prosperity gospel. The aim, of, the aim of the gospel is that you live a glorious and rich life here. I don't think that's the way that things are working out for Paul. In fact, in this context, Paul is receiving this gift in a setting of prison to meet his daily needs. And what Paul's saying to the church is, as you are generous and as you practice and cultivate a, a generous life, God has a promise. He'll meet your needs. And I think if I take Malachi and I mash it up with Philippians 4, here's what I find. I find that, that, that if you have a reluctance to be generous towards the work of God and you, you're struggling with that or your, your finances just never seem to kind of come up to speed, here's what I would encourage you to do. Take a short period of time 
Pick a period of time in your mind, six weeks, six months, three months, whatever it may be, and covenant something with God. Say, God, I'm going to memorize that promise, and I'm going to begin to practice generosity. I'm going to see what happens. Because the truth is that there are many within our church family that I assume are generous. I and the other pastoral team members have no clue what people give. The only time I know what someone gives is they walk up to me and say, I want to pay for that. That's the only time I know. Uh, one time my, if I could say this this way, one time my dad had written a check to our church like 20 years ago. And he says, hey, did that check come? And I said, I wouldn't have the foggiest idea. Because we're not involved in that as, a, as, as church leadership. So what I would encourage you to do is just to say, God, I, I'm going to claim your promise. And I'm going to start to give in a generous way to the work of the church. And see what God does. Okay? Um, as I've gone through this message and as I've talked about giving before, I, I made a decision years ago that as, as, as one of the members of the pastoral team here at the chapel that in relationship to giving, my wife and I would be transparent. What I mean by that is this. I, I cannot get up here and preach something that I am not personally living. Okay? Does that make sense? So what I can say to you, and you can ask John and Corey, they're the ones that have the responsibility to take care of offerings. Um, they know what we give, okay? They have a pretty good idea of what we earn. Here's what I want you to know. I am not asking you to do something that we don't personally participate in. I'm not encouraging you to do something and to lay hold of a promise that we're not seeking to lay hold of. Uh, and I will tell you this. Biblical giving will at some level alter your life and experience. If you give in a biblical fashion, if you, if you give a tithe, you, you will find that your life on a daily basis is, is at some level affected. It, it, in some cases, it's going to affect the car that you drive. In some cases, it's going to affect how often you can go out to eat. It's going to affect very specific things in your experience. And I believe that step out in obedience to that is simply this. It's a step of faith. It's an act of trusting God. And, and what, what I would testify to you as someone who was taught this by my mom when I got my first job, uh, that 10% goes to God, what I can testify to in my personal experience is that God is faithful. And I, I trust him with this. I believe that God can make the 90% cover our needs if we follow what I believe to be the biblical pattern of giving. So what is the biblical pattern of giving? Let me just tag this. Having gone through those those, uh, that story of Paul's letter and understanding that at the end of the day, God's promise to the generous is that I'll meet your needs. But it happens for those who are willing to say, you know what, I need to adopt a biblical perspective on my relationship to my resources. So what are the biblical standards for giving? And I, I'm going to summarize this at, 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 at three simple statements, okay? First of all, this. In the Old Testament, the principle of tithing was the normative measure for giving. Now, a tithe simply means a tenth. That's what it means. It means 
Okay, so if you were to read through the Old Testament, try to understand what is the basic teaching in the Old Testament. You're going to find the basic teaching in the Old Testament is that you take what you earn, you give 10% to God, which is kind of a first fruits offering. It's an acknowledgement of ownership that ultimately it all belongs to and goes back to God. I am a steward of God's resources. And this I'll tell you this, in the Old Testament, it's the only time that a numerical standard is applied to giving. But it happens before the law in the Old Testament works its way all the way through the Old Testament. When you come into the New Testament, what does the Bible teach about giving? And this is, I think, where we live. We're part of the local church. What's the instruction that's given to us today that helps us to unpack and understand how we relate to our finances? The answer is this. The standard in the New Testament is generosity. All right, Paul says to those that have more than they need, which is the definition of rich, he says, command them to be generous, to give freely, to be rich in good deeds. That's the idea. So generosity is the the normative direction of the New Testament. Here's my personal conviction, okay? The only statement in the Bible about how much is the tithe. That's the only statement. It's not lifted, Okay, it's, ne- it's never taken away. It seems to abide, I think, as a, as a good starting point for giving. All right, there's, there's tithing and then there's offerings. There's the normal needs that are present and then there are the special opportunities that come along, up along the way in life. And what we want you to know as a husband and wife, my wife and I, is that we pra- that's what we practice. Okay, and we believe that to be the general direction of Scripture. Here's what we know from the New Testament as well. We know from 1 Corinthians 16 that our giving is to be proportionate. So in the Old Testament, I have the standard of tithing. In the New Testament, I have the command to be generous. And in 1 Corinthians 16, I think I find out a little bit about what that looks like. Let me read for you 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1. On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with their income. Okay? And that's all it says. So what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means I'm to take what God gives me on a weekly basis. And I'm to take something from that in accordance with how much I have and give it to the work of God. It's that simple. Okay? So if I earn a lot, then the Bible says this. To whom much is given, much is required. If I earn a lot less, then my giving level is going to be less. That's just... Fundamental, simple, common sense as you kind of take these three principles and work them together. Tithing and generosity are the only standards in the Bible mentioned for giving, along with the idea this it's proportionate. Now, as a church family, we began in 1990 with kind of the, 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 the reawakening of what was then Great Hope Baptist Church, Okay. Uh, a man named John George moved here, got this church started. Uh, it grew pretty significantly, and then it just kind of collapsed. And wrote a letter to the seminary that I was attending, and, and my wife and I were uh, in the process of graduating and looking for a place to serve. And that letter came to uh, me at my dad's hardware store. Uh, read the letter. The guy said, I'm looking for someone to come up and preach a couple times. And we said, okay, we'll go. I like to preach. We'll go up and we'll, we'll preach. So here we are, 29 years later, still answering that letter. But here's what I want you to know. 
when we came here and started coming on a regular basis, and a few months later, John George said to me, hey, we're leaving. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're going to do, but we're leaving. I'm like, I just stared. Talked to my pastor at my home church, uh, Dr. E. Robert Jordan. Explained the situation because he's the one that got me into the mess <laughs> through this letter that he gave me. He said, hey, my, Huff, you might, might want to go check out this church. So we, we came over here and checked it out, and here we are. But what happened was interesting. We financially were not viable. Like, I couldn't move here and uh, take anything from the church. It just wouldn't have worked. My home church had a vision for starting 100 churches. And how they did it was this. And this is amazing when you think about this. They said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to draw up a, a weekly budget need for the church. Okay? I did all the calculations, insurance, building rental, uh, our salary, auto mileage, uh, on and on, all the things. And I, I did it on the calculator, and the number was 666. I kid you not. I was horrified. I said, i got to lower one of these expenses a little bit. <laughs> I was like, that's not going to work. That's scary. So gave him the number 660, which was kind of fudging, okay, shaving a little bit. And here's what my home church did, okay? And this to me is a definition of generosity. And what I want you to know is that we exist as a church family because of the generation, generosity of other people. Okay, so that everything that's happened for us started with generosity from others. And I want that to encourage you. Here's what they did. They said, okay, we're going to open a bank account in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, which is my hometown. And uh, here's the way it's going to work. For 13 months, you're going to take an offering on Sunday morning from the, you know, 14 to 20 people that are there, and you're going to put it in the bank account. And if the offering that on a given Sunday is $200, then we're going to write a check for $460 and put it in your account. I, I can't remember how long it took us to get to the point where we didn't need their help anymore. I honestly, in my mind, it's like six months, but I can't remember. But I and we should never forget that we exist because the church had a vision to start churches that they would then sever from them, cut the umbilical cord in 13 months, and you would be an independent church, which meant that they had no benefit on earth from what they had done. I love that. People want to give the things that they get benefit from or that they can experience. My home church just had a desire to start churches. And they set up a very generous plan with very little controls. And all they were ensuring, your needs will be met. And I love that. So my challenge to you as you think about this idea of giving is to realize that as a church family, we exist because of the generosity of others. The, the blessing of this new move that we're participating in is because of the generosity of others. Us being in this building with a vast majority of it paid for is because of the generosity of people that preceded us or are still here with us. It's how God does His work. And in doing that, you're laying up treasure in heaven. And along with that generosity comes a promise from God that if and when you're generous, watch what happens. And don't be surprised. And here's what I think God is doing. This is my personal conviction. I think 
Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ. I think it's a promise that when God gives you more, he is increasing your opportunity to serve. I don't think it's a promise to enhance your life or to make your life better. I think it's a promise to increase opportunities to make a difference in the lives of people around you. And as you start to do that, you'll start to have the experience of John Benton that starts to say, I'd like to have that, but I don't need it because I'm laying up treasure in heaven by how I live. Folks, it's fundamentally liberating. It will sever the shackles of materialism and money in your life when you begin to say, I want to get my eyes fixed on what God is doing here that has a direct impact on what's going to happen there in eternity. So that my, my heart and my life and my perspective are just adjusted. And I begin to realize I can live with a little less so that the work of God can advance. So, as a church family, we come from a variety of places. Some in hard places financially, some experiencing prosperity, some doing better than others. If you consider this your home church and have never given regularly, I just give you this very simple encouragement. And these are the words from God. So I'm quoting God's words from Malachi. God says, trust me in this, in generosity. And I'm not going to set a number on it. I've just given you the basic three guidelines that are in the Old and New Testament. That's all I got. But I would encourage you just to pray and to start to say, God, how do you want us to participate and what you're doing in our church family. How can we assist in meeting the the needs that are present within our church family so that your kingdom will advance and so that we as a church family are laying up treasure in heaven? I also realize that there are people within our church family uh, because of various home situations, just unique circumstances, that you... I don't want you to feel guilty if because of your broader life picture you're not able to give in the way that you would like to. You shouldn't feel guilty. Okay, and I want you to know that. Uh, Sometimes you're going through a season of life where you just, there isn't anything there. Okay, I don't want you to leave feeling guilty. I want you to pray and just say, God, show me how I can participate in what you're doing here. Just guide me and show me. Give me a willing heart. Give me eyes to see. Make me generous. Now, This text says that God will meet all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, what God wants you to first know is not the principles of giving. He wants you to know the principle of receiving from his riches in Christ. He wants you to come to a place where you treasure, love, and know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He wants you to realize that no amount of money can ever pay off your sin debt, but the blood of Christ that we sung about this morning, there is a fountain that can and will by faith. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you never trusted Christ, don't give. Trust. And if you know Christ and you count the chapel in Warren Valley as your church family, cultivate a practice of generous giving to the glory of God. May God help us. Father, we thank you. Uh, this morning for your word that is so clear and direct and helpful in this area. Uh, Father, we confess our reluctance. We confess our tendency to be uh, caught up in temporal things. Father, give us a heart like John Benton had. Give us a heart like uh, Calvary Baptist Church in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, that, 
that came alongside and, and expecting nothing in return supported this ministry so that it could gain a footing and grow and prosper in the work of the gospel. Father, give us that kind of a heart, not only individually, but as a church family, so that we can live in the, in, in the overflow of your blessing and promise so that our ministry can increase for your glory. And we pray for these blessings and ask for these blessings in the glorious name of our Savior Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together.